I'm Kendra Winchester, here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast where we're reclaiming half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And this is episode 49, where we're talking about women who have won the Nobel Prize in Literature. Hello, Kendra. Hello, Autumn. I'm very excited about this episode. I know. You've been nerding out about it for a while. Yes, because we all know I'm obsessed with book prizes for various reasons, and so we had actually planned this uh, for about a year now, yeah. and then there's been a lot of news around it. So I know I was kind of hoping that a woman would win this year, but I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> so first, then the news. The news. Big news this week is about the Man Booker Long List. Yes, they announced the long list for the Man Booker Prize, and there are 13. It's called the Man Booker Dozen. It's like a baker's dozen. It's 13. And so there are seven women and six men, which according, I, I think that's unprecedented. I think that's the most women that have ever been longlisted, at least in recent times, it definitely is. It's a nice mix for sure. Um, it is, though, you know, there has been a lot of buzz in the UK, and we'll just, we'll just say it, complaining that two Americans have won it two years in a row, now that we're allowed to enter. Uh, and so it is very, very UK and Ireland based. There's only three US writers and the rest are from UK and Ireland. Is there one from Canada? Maybe. Maybe. I just know that I didn't know half of the names that were on the list. Yeah, that's because they're all out in the UK and they're not out in the US yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I've already added some to my TBR. Yeah, and thank goodness for Book Depository, but that does mean that people can't get them from their library or online resources until they come out in the United States, if you're here in the U.S. But it's also, it's it's a pretty, we'll just say it, the ethnicity diversity is not quite there. We'll just say that. It's lacking. Yeah. It's a struggle. Uh, they, they did get, I mean, the women thing I'm very happy with, but it's like, maybe one day they'll get both of them. <laughs> is it too much to ask? Is it too much to ask? Seriously. <laughs> I think so. I think so. <laughs> Baby steps, right? I don't know. <laughs> but I'm very much looking forward to reading several books. Actually, the first book I, I, I got from the list is Richard Powers' The Overstory because it's about trees. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So. We, know, we know you read Barkskins. We know you have a thing for trees. I do. Actually, that was one of my wedding theme and my living room theme. So, I mean... It's it's genuine. It's a trend. It's a very genuine thing. But I'm very excited about Sally Rooney. Uh, she wrote Conversations with Friends and her second book, whatever it's called. I forget at the moment, but it's on the long list. And a lot of people are excited because Conversations with Friends was a really popular book when it came out. That was one of the, yeah, she was one of the names that I knew from that list, but I didn't really know any of the others. Yeah, so here's hoping that a woman wins this year because a woman hasn't won since Eleanor Canton won for the Luminaries. It's like 2013? Yeah, that book's been out a long time. Yeah, so I remember feeling like I deserved an award when I finished it because it's like 20-some hours on audio. I know. I need to, I need to, that's, that's next year's TBR for sure. Maybe instead of a Nobel, we'll do a Man Booker theme. <laughs> Maybe. We'll try. We'll see. <laughs> And then in other news this week, uh, Barnes & Noble fired their CEO. 
Yeah, around the time our first podcast came out last month, we got news that the Barnes & Noble had fired yet another CEO. They've gone through a lot of them recently. And it said it was for violations of companies of the company's policies, and it was not due to any disagreement with the company regarding its financial reporting policies or practices or any potential fraud relating thereto. So basically, he wasn't embezzling money or anything. It was for some unsaid reason. So a lot of people are speculating what exactly he did to get fired without severance. I mean, I'm sure there's speculation around some sort of sexual harassment or something like that. Exactly. There's been a lot of it with the Me Too movement has reached the book community pretty hard. So, Which, I mean, that's just speculation. Um, but hopefully they get someone in there soon because, you know, Love it or not, Barnes & Noble is still a good way for people to get books, and I would hate for them to go under. Yeah, yeah. It seems since it's not just, you know, the internet plus chain stores plus indies. It's not like physical bookstores versus the internet. And, you know, Barnes & Noble is really integral to that. And honestly, growing up, I didn't even have – we had a Borders, and then they closed, and then it was like an hour and a half to our nearest bookstore – and that was Barnes & Noble. So I really hope that they figure out how to make it work because they're really not doing very well. I've heard a lot on the bookish news podcasts and websites and different things that uh, following along and they really just aren't, aren't doing great. So yeah, here's hoping that they figure out something that works for them. And this wasn't on our list to talk about, but did you read about the person who said that libraries should close and Amazon should open stores in their place? No. <laughs> Did you really miss that? I missed that. What? I heard that there's a dude that said, who goes to libraries anymore? But that was the last. So there is this Forbes article where this person said that just like Starbucks has taken over. I don't remember the example he gave, but he was said that instead of putting public money into libraries, that, that they should close the libraries and put Amazon bookstores in their place. Affluent much? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, needless to say, like the the internet lost its collective mind, and I lost my collective mind because libraries are near and dear to my heart, and I, I mean, I don't know where I'd be without my library. But there was a lot of good points made about the fact that libraries are more than just books. They provide free internet, they provide free tax help, they provide resources for homeless shelters and stuff. And the last time I went to my library, I picked up the pamphlet of programs at my local library and they have language classes and yoga classes and kids robotics classes and music lessons and, you know, public forums about how to talk to your landlord and like all this stuff that's just and like even how to register to vote and things like that. So, you know, libraries provide a lot more than just books. But so the guy Forbes pulled the article, but yeah, as they as they should. That's just like how unconnected with reality are you? I don't. I just can't even. <laughs> I can't either. And like we we support the book industry and we try to buy local and buy hard copies as often as we can. But you know, you can't buy all the books in the world. <laughs> no, no, you can't. And honestly, I think we buy more books from used bookstores and library sales because it's it I don't know it's affordable and books are expensive that's something that a lot of people try to shove under the rug is that if you buy not everyone can afford to buy indie but you can buy your at your local library's book sales and that's a great way to support your library and get books so here's to the library 
our last bit of news, we're actually going to talk about a little bit more in our next discussion episode. But we do need to mention, since this is the Nobel-themed month, about how they've postponed the Nobel Prize in Literature this year. Yeah, so basically the Nobel Council got all tied up in, it was a sex scandal, wasn't it? We don't really know. A woman on the academy that decides these things, her husband was actually involved in a scandal. And That's so right. there was there was people who resigned because they didn't think that the Nobel Academy responded to the situation correctly. And according to their laws, you have to have X amount of people to vote in, you know, a Nobel winner. But you can't actually resign from the board. You have to basically die and then they can replace you. But to replace you, they also have to have enough people to vote. So they're hung right now according to their own bylaws. <laughs> so I'm going to put a link in the show notes to an episode of Annotated, which is book one of Book Riot's, like, basically This American Life for books. And they did a great episode explaining exactly what's going on with the Nobel, and they describe it very well. So I'm going to include that. So if you want to listen to that before our next episode where we talk about the prize a little bit more, um, I would highly recommend that because they describe our current um, mess very well. So, <laughs> yeah. So that said, there's not going to be a book this year. They said they might have one this year or next year announced two, like one yeah. for 18 and one for 19. Something um, like that. Something like that. But for our episode, we are going to talk about some of the women who have won the Nobel Prize in the past. And there's only been 14. Out of 114. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's. Oh, my goodness. Just insert all the feelings here, everyone. I'm pretty sure you can imagine our internal screaming. <laughs> so before we get too far about, along that road, let's just talk about some of the wonderful women who have won the Nobel. Let's do. And you have the first pick, so why don't you start us off? I do. So for my first pick is Alice Munro, who is a Canadian. She won the Nobel in 2013. She's was born in 1931, and she is known as the master of the contemporary short story. And I read her short story collection, Dear Life, which is her most, I think it's her most recent one. It was published, I think, around 2013. Uh, maybe it might just be my edition, but it is definitely one of my recent ones because the topics of the short stories are a lot of elderly people. So she's still alive. Alice Monroe is still alive. She is like 87. She's the same age as Toni Morrison, incidentally, and she <laughs> writes these beautiful little short stories about these small things in your life that can have a big change, and she writes a lot of stories that feel almost timeless, that time period somewhere between the 50s and the 80s where you don't know what the time period is, you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? And she does a great job with that, and there's one time at the end of the story where it's a girl growing up and then she like looks back as an adult and she talks about sending someone an email and I'm like, oh my word, this is the first time technology has been mentioned in the entire collection. And she just has a beautiful way of writing and it's so concise and it's not flowery, but she packs a lot of information into her sentences. I mean, you have to, to be a short story uh, writer. And uh, one of my favorite short stories is about this girl whose mom has an affair and they move in with her mom's boyfriend and her mom is pregnant with her boyfriend's baby. And so they move to this trailer near this gravel pit. 
her mom uh, sends the girls out to play because that's what you did. You send them out to play outside. And there were there was this accident, and I can't tell you what else happens. That's a spoiler. But And it's her looking back on this accident and her mom's, you know, running off with this dude and how her dad got remarried and just a lot of different stuff. And it's like this one moment in her entire life. And sometimes she will come out of the narration and talk about, in the future, I talked to my therapist about X. And it's a way of balancing the different views of narration from a single character. I've been meaning to read her for forever. I feel like I say that about everybody, but I first heard about her collection, Hateship, Friendship, Courtship, Loveship, Marriage, which came out in 2002. But I mean, she sounds amazing and she was supposed to be on my list this year and then life happened. But yeah, and I was reading them. I was like, oh, Autumn would love this one. Oh, Autumn yeah. would love this one. Yeah. Another favorite is where this there's this older couple. They're both, she's 75 and he's like a little older. This old, this older, elderly lady comes to the door and starts selling these like cosmetics and they, she writes her in for coffee and they become friends. And then one time her husband, Frank meets this lady and is like, oh my goodness. And she realizes this lady is the subject of her husband. Well, I think he's just her partner, her partner's poetry. And this really sensual, like sexual poetry collection thingy he wrote about this woman. And this woman shows up in his life again. And it's like her at 75 having this very almost like younger person moment of what am I going to do with my relationship? You know, we've spent a lifetime together. We're 75, but you kind of forget that. And she goes through this like tumultuous moment in her life and it's so good. Yeah. And I think it's really important too that she's writing about older people as well because we don't often see narratives about older people. Most stories are about younger people. Yeah, I definitely think she's combating the ageism that's in literature oftentimes with this focus on, especially with women, I think, focusing on youth. Yeah, absolutely. So that is Dear Life by Alice Munro, and the copy that I have is published by Vintage. So my first pick is The Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck, and my edition is published by Washington Square Press. And this book won the Nobel in 1938. And it is a multi-generational family story about a Chinese farmer and his family who live in pre-World War II China. And we start out when Wang Long is getting married to this girl who's a slave and the, the rich man in town. Like, you, you follow him from a young man to an older man. So this book was originally published in 1931. And Pearl, she grew up in... China. She was the daughter of missionaries and spent most of her her life in China. And so she won the first the Pulitzer for this book and then the Nobel for this book. So it's it's quite quite decorated. And I've been meaning to read it for a long time and I never had. Yeah, it's been on my list for a while. I went on Audible and realized I'd owned the book the audiobook for like five years and I'd never listened to it. Oh wow. I was surprised at like how lyrical the language was it wasn't like for being 1930s it didn't read like a book written in the 1930s which take that for whatever you want to take it it's a stereotype <laughs> on my part it was hard to get into the book but then once I got into it I really really loved it and this is actually going to be one of our discussion books and one of the things that we're going to talk about is Celeste Ng wrote a review of this book for the Huffington Post and she also wrote a very long review on Goodreads which I read prior to finishing this book actually and she kind of confronts some of the legacy of this book which is mainly that often people read this book and take it to be a sweeping 
uh, representation of all of China, she sets the record straight on that. And for her, it's very personal in the sense of people thought that they sh- they knew her because they read this book or knew her family. And so she just warns against that, which I think is really important. Yeah. I really appreciated her take on this, especially since, you know, it's like, what, 80 years old at this point, somewhere around there. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's dated in some ways, but, you know, we're going to discuss more of it later. But yeah, there's a lot here that we can still look at and we can still critique it and take it for what it is. But yeah, and she was the fourth woman to win the Nobel. And this is part of the trilogy that she wrote pre-World War II. And so it had a great effect on America's viewpoints of China. And so that's why we help allied with them and different things like that. So it's a very interesting discussion book. I'm looking forward to it. I had no idea it was part of a trilogy until I looked it up on Goodreads. Thank you, Goodreads, for your parentheses (laughs) numbers. Um, Because I I had no clue. I thought it was a standalone book. And yeah, I think it's fascinating that this book was really progressive for its time. And, you know, we were talking about before we were recording how we a book can be progressive at the time and now we look back on it maybe it's not as progressive but I still think it's a worthwhile read just for the structure and the prose and kind of what she does with it but we're going to talk about that more in the next episode so that is The Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck and my next pick is Beloved by Toni Morrison and this is published by Knopf in 1987 Uh, Toni Morrison won the Nobel in 1993 And this book actually won the Pulitzer. And it really was one of the big books that solidified Toni Morrison, I think, as a candidate for the Nobel. Um, And Beloved is possibly her most famous work. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in our discussion episode because Beloved is my discussion pick for the next one. Well, first off, Beloved does have some trigger warnings for sexual violence and just violence against women and children. So if that's something you would like to know more specifics about, definitely send us a message and I'm happy to let you know. Um, I want people to be informed, but it is a very harrowing book because it deals with a slave woman named Sethi and her escaping slavery and she has children and she has a lot of flashbacks to her time um, on this plantation uh, place in Kentucky And it starts out, actually, when she has already left slavery. She's been out of slavery for a long time, and she's living with her daughter in a house. And she meets a man named Paul D., who used to be on the plantation with her. And it kind of triggers a bunch of events, including flashbacks. And her daughter kind of has to come to terms with who her mom was because she didn't grow up on the plantation like her mom did. And there's just a lot of complex things going on. And one of the things that Toni Morrison wanted to do was have an inner dialogue of a slave woman and what that might be like. Because up until this point, most of the time, African-American women who had been slaves or who were slaves were viewed from the outside rather than having, you know, their own inner dialogue portrayed on the page. And that's something she wanted to change. So, it, yeah, it is it is very harrowing. And like Autumn, I had heard about this book so much and I was very much looking forward to reading it. And the way that she does this nonlinear narrative of Sethi's life and the information that she reveals in a very meticulous way was just like, oh my goodness, you know, like 
you just can't describe exactly what she's done. It's definitely something that requires your attention and that you digest it. And I would, I really want to go and read some secondary resources on it or maybe her own commentary on her work. Uh, Toni Morrison is 87. She's the same age as Alice Monroe, like I said. So she's still, you know, has been narrating new audiobooks. She's been redoing some of the abridged ones to do unabridged and she reads them. Oh, wow. So I did Beloved as an audiobook and she reads it. And it's fantastic. I should do that. Yeah. She's amazing. She is. She does everything. It's We're going to talk about her a little bit more in the discussion podcast, but she really is. She really does just so much great work. And she's published 11 novels and she does essays. And I think I think she might have done some poetry. I might have just read that somewhere. I'm not sure. Uh, she just does a little bit of everything. She was a teacher at Princeton. And yeah, so she's a very interesting, important figure in literature. So we're going to talk about her next time. So that is Beloved by Toni Morrison is out from Knopf. Which brings us to our ad spot this month where we are talking about the Reading Women Bookstore. And this month we are doing a special promotion on our book dates and our tote bags. You all cleaned us out last month during Reading Women Month. And so we decided to do, we have a whole new fresh stock of books and we decided to do another promotion this month as well and include the tote bags this time. Right, and I don't think we've ever actually had a discount on our tote bags before that I can remember. I don't know that we have. It's been a long time, so <laughs> this is your this is your chance. So you can use the code Nobel Women No Spaces uh, for fifteen percent off the blind book dates and or tote bags. And I'm really excited uh, for this. And we always love doing uh, blind book dates, and we love seeing photos of you and your tote bags and reading women tote bags everywhere. Yes. Ugh. And, and we made sure we got nice tote bags. So these are the ones with the, oh, what are they called? The mitered feet where, like, they stand up when you stand them up. and Yeah, which is important for a bookish tote bag. Yes. Definitely. And they're canvas, so they're, they are very nice, if I may say so myself. <laughs> um, so you can get one and show your love for books by or about women. Um, I know, Kendra, that you have some of your bookish pins on your Reading Women tote bag, which is a great idea. I do. I really love bookish pins. I just love the idea of decorating my tote bag. So you can also do that if you like. So the promo code for that is NOBELWOMEN, all one word, should not be case sensitive. And you can enter that promo code at the checkout to get 15% off your order. And we will also have a link in our show notes so you can check those out as well. And it looks like you have the next pick, Autumn. Yes. So my next pick, I wanted to try to find something well, first of all, there are only 14 women to choose from. Um, <laughs> second of all, um, I wanted to try to pick someone that I wouldn't normally pick up. And so I picked up the selected poems of Gabriella Mistral. And this particular edition is translated by Langston Hughes. Wow. Yeah. It's only 144 pages, something like that. So it's pretty short. Um, there's another edition of her poems that was translated by Ursula Le Guin, and it is actually like 400 pages, and it, because it has like the Spanish on one side and the English on the other side, so you can kind of compare them visually, which is really oh, cool. Oh, that is amazing. Yeah, it's huge. Like, it's probably like four inches thick. Um, I'm going to end up posting about it on Instagram just because I think it's so cool, but I didn't have, I didn't get to read the 400-page one. Um <laughs> So That's this, a bit of a chunkster. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a chunk. So this came out um, by Indiana University Press in 1945. Langston Hughes' int intro is amazing, and I'm going to read part of it. So he said that her poems came out of a place where like, she was 
in love with this guy and he committed suicide and she was devastated by it. And so a lot of her poems came out of that. And she never got married. She was a teacher and taught children her whole life. And he was saying that since her since her poems deal with such womanly issues, I think as he put it, um, he wanted a woman to translate it, but no one would do it. And so he thought that she was so important that he decided that he was going to do it. That's really interesting. Oh, yeah. he's Since her poetry is so intensely feminine, however, I, decided, I hesitated to attempt translations myself, hoping that a woman would do so. None did in terms of a book. So he says that when he was asked to do it, he decided to to do it just to get her work out and he was also you know it's interesting like her poems apparently are really popular so she was born in chile and her poems are really popular in south america but for whatever reason they've never been published here very much that's really sad because i mean if she, she's such a prominent woman so women i mean all 14 women i think should be everywhere there should be series of books just dedicated to women that win the nobel prize in literature because it's just there's so few of them yeah, and I actually, in my research, trying to find the best edition, <laughs> um, I got all three copies of poetry collections that the Atlanta Library had, and all three editions were published by university presses. So none of them have been published by mainstream presses, which is kind of sad as well. Um, but the, these poems are short, and they're brief, but they're beautiful, and you really can tell that they come from a place of her own personal longing. And I wanted to read one other section too. She wrote a series of poems about giving birth. And there's a note by the poet in here. And so there's this big note before where she talks about how no one was talking about this and how no, like how she had seen all these women who were like pregnant and like walking through the streets and she said that she thought one of us must proclaim since men have not done so the sacredness of this painful yet divine condition if the mission of art is to beautify all an immensity of pity why have we not in the eyes of the impure purified this she said so i wrote the poems with an almost religious meaning so here here <laughs> yeah. so she's quite the revolutionary and gabriella mistral is not actually her real name so it's actually her pen name and she's really really cool i'm not doing her justice in this short span but she really was one of, like, the first great female poets as well. Like, that was, like, wildly popular. She's really cool. Highly recommend checking her out. This is a very short edition, and Langston Hughes' introduction is worth getting this copy in and of itself. Though I did read Ursula Le Guin's introduction, too, and hers is pretty cool, so maybe just get both. And she won the Nobel in 1945. She was the next one after Pearl S. Buck, right? Yes, and she was actually the first Latin American author to receive the Nobel Prize as well. Wow. That is, yeah. that is pretty cool. Yeah. So she's, she's amazing. And, like, she was an ambassador and a diplomat and, like, all this stuff and went traveled around the world teaching children and promoting literacy. So she was just amazing. Yeah. And we call her St. Gabriella or something. Yeah, she's, she's really cool. So I highly, highly recommend picking up a copy of any copy of the poems of Gabriella Mistral, um, particularly this edition is with a, translated by Langston Hughes and published by Indiana University Press. So now it's time for our guest recommender spot. And this month we have Jennifer, who is a book reviewer as well as a booktuber. And a lot of her content often revolves around reviewing a long list or short list from a literary prize or just her general thoughts on particular prizes. She definitely shares my love of prizes. So I asked her, what two books would you recommend from the women who have won the Nobel Prize in Literature? 
And this was her answer. Um, as some background about me, after I graduated from college, I spent two years working in the Czech Republic and Russia. So I'm always looking for more Central and Eastern European authors to be discussed in the English-speaking world, which is one reason that today I'm highlighting books by two women from that region who are Nobel laureates. The first of those women is the Polish poet Wisława Zimborska, and I recommend Poems New and Collected, which is available in a well-regarded translation by Stanislaw Baranczyk and Claire Kavanaugh. Zimborska has a relatively small body of work, only around 350 poems, and when she was asked why she'd published so few, she responded, I have a trash can in my home. Um, this edition includes almost all of that work from collections that were released between 1957 and 1997. So specifically, what unites these poems across decades is her attention to the small details of life and how she often sets them against societal or historical backdrops. Basically, she can make the epic feel every day and vice versa. Polish history crops up from the time of the Roman Empire up through 20th century tragedies, Art features heavily, but in quite an accessible and sometimes funny way. There's a poem about someone calling the wrong number so that there's a phone ringing in an art gallery late at night and none of the paintings can pick up the phone. One of my favorite poems is called Thank You Note. And the opening lines are, I owe so much to those I don't love. And the whole poem is an ode to people who don't stress you out because you don't care about them that much. It says, I don't wait for them as in window to door and back. I understand what love can't and forgive as love never would. Trips with them always go smoothly. Concerts are heard. Cathedrals visited. Scenery is seen. So I love that twist right from the beginning that this is not your typical thank you note. There are also recurring images of two people in a room together. Often these people are looking at each other. A beautiful example is a poem called Golden Anniversary, which describes the early stage of love as that assault on one another's otherness. And then it contrasts that with the type of love people who have been together for decades feel. It reads, one day the answer came before the question. Another night they guessed their eyes expression by the type of silence in the dark. So it, it seems for Zimborska there's something magical about knowing someone this well, but also something has been lost along the way. Now, for some more background, Zimborska was wildly famous in Poland during her life. She actually sold as well as successful Polish prose writers, but it wasn't until she won the Nobel in 1996 that she gained substantial international attention, which is a reminder of what this prize can do for non-English speaking writers, especially and this edition, Poems New and Collected, includes her 1996 Nobel acceptance speech, which is lovely. It's wonderfully down to earth. So to wrap things up, I think this is a good collection for poetry fans and nervous poetry readers alike. I fall into the latter category, but she's not writing about obscure things in an obscure way. She looks at everyday life and everyday relationships with a, a lyrical frankness that I think will appeal to a lot of readers. The second writer I want to mention is Svetlana Alexeyevich, who's a Belarusian investigative journalist and semi-nonfiction author who writes in Russian. She won the prize in 2015, and it was quite unusual for a journalistic writer to win the Nobel, although there's a lot of debate about what to call Alexeyevich's brand of writing. The most useful term I've found is documentary literature. What she does is she interviews 
ordinary people, usually citizens of the former Soviet Union, about major historical events and how those manifested in their lives. And then she freely edits those interview transcripts. She's actually famous for continuing to edit her books even after they've been published and releasing these new editions if she's artistically unsatisfied with the old. Two of her most famous works are Voices from Chernobyl about the 1986 nuclear disaster and what some call her masterpiece, Secondhand Time, about the dissolution of the USSR. But the one I'd like to recommend is called Zinky Boys. My edition was translated by Julia and Robin Whitby. And it's a series of interviews with people affected by the Soviet-Afghan war of the 1980s. The book gets its title from the fact that most of the Soviet men who died in combat were shipped back home in these, these cheap zinc coffins. And the types of people whose voices are featured include combat veterans, former doctors and nurses, civilian employees, most of whom were young women, and then the, the bereaved back home, including widows and mothers of fallen soldiers. Some important context here is the way Russian society lionizes the Second World War in particular and military service in general. I was often struck by this when I lived there. World War II is referred to as the Great Patriotic War. The annual holiday for men in Russia is called Defender of the Fatherland Day. And Victory Day, commemorating the end of World War II, is one of the largest national celebrations all year. Fun fact about that is if it looks like it's going to rain over Red Square in Moscow on Victory Day, the Russian government pays for jets to go squirt cloud-dispersing chemicals into the sky so that the sun will shine on Red Square that day. No joke. So the men who went off to fight in the Soviet-Afghan war grew up in a culture that treated military vets like glorious heroes, But what these Soviet citizens found when they went to Afghanistan was that there was no clear ideology or strategy involved. And the line between good and bad guys was hopelessly muddled. It was chaos and bloodshed with no objective behind them. And Alexeyevich captures these feelings of confusion and terror and loss, you know, of life and limb, but also loss of belief. Because when the survivors returned to the USSR, they found that this war was being conducted in secret that they were not to be treated as heroes. And to this day, no one really discusses it because it's considered shameful. So I recommend Zinky Boys for people interested in the psychology of something like the Vietnam War. There are obvious parallels between the two, but Soviet culture had a much stronger tradition of state-sponsored censorship. So imagine a Vietnam War where no average Americans discussed it while it was happening and where there weren't these mass protests and calls for transparency. Zingy Boys is a brutal read, and like with all of her books, Alexeyevich builds this chorus of voices until they transform into an emotional crescendo. To recap, Poems New and Collected by Vyslava Zimborska is a pretty comprehensive look at her career and full of gentle poems with these fierce moments that sneak up on you. So if you're looking to add more poetry to your life, I recommend it. It's an accessible choice. And Zinky Boys by Svetlana Alexeyevich crosses the divide of fiction and nonfiction and provides a really head-on sobering portrait of the Soviet-Afghan war from the Soviet perspective. So if anything about that description catches your, your interest, check it out. 
And with those two selections, we have our six total books for our theme of Nobel laureates, female Nobel Prize in Literature winners. We are just thrilled to have all of these here. And many thanks to Jennifer for coming on the podcast and talking about those two selections. If you want more amazing reviews like that, definitely go check out Jennifer's booktube channel, Insert Literary Pun Here, where she does an amazing job. So yeah, that's it. That's the end of uh, our selections for this month's theme. So Kendra, what are you reading now? So I picked up The Incendiaries by Aro Kwan, which is out from Riverhead. And this is one of the most buzz books of the summer. Yeah, you better be glad I don't live near you because I would steal it. <laughs> you'd sneak into my house and you'd grab it I and would. you would leave. And I would still be asleep. Because so I, have no idea. I am friends with your attack dog, so... That's true. That's true. When Aunt Autumn comes to visit, he I don't exist anymore. This is a true story. Anyway. So, yeah, this book is about three different characters, and one of them join, ends up joining this conservative religious terrorist group. And it's like a cult kind of thing. And I'm very interested because Araquan wrote this beautiful piece in the New York Times, or maybe it was on her. Anyway, point being, there was this thing about the book in the New York Times. It's a beautiful article. And I was like, I still, I had already wanted to read it, but it made me want to read it even more. So I'm so excited to finally have a copy in my hands. And it actually just came out on July 31st. So everyone needs to go out and get the book. So definitely. So what are you reading I am reading Fruit of the Drunken Tree by Ingrid Rojas Contreras, and this book is out by Doubleday. It is coming out, it will be out by the time this podcast airs. It's coming out on July 31st, and it is set in 1990s Colombia, and it's about a girl and a teenage maid who strike up an unlikely friendship, and yeah, it sounds like female friendship plus like war plus like all kinds of stuff and like class issues this is another book that's been much buzzed about the late this summer i feel like early summer there weren't many buzzed books but this is another one of them that people have been talking about a lot i've heard great things about it i'm taking on my vacation next week and i'm so excited <laughs> yeah autumn was like this is mine and she's like this is she bumped it up to the top of her tbr she was like sorry other books this is the one i'm reading <laughs> yes i was like <laughs> yes I was like, I know you've been sitting on that shelf for a month, but sorry. (laughs) So I'm very much looking forward to you reporting back after vacation and telling me all about it. And I will also say that as a physical object, this edition of this book is absolutely gorgeous. But alas, I digress. Now, the last currently reading is, of course, from our guest, Jennifer. And so before we hung up the phone, I had to ask her, hey, Jennifer, what are you currently reading? Yeah, I'm reading a 2018 release by Deborah Levy called The Cost of Living, a Working Autobiography. I don't know if you've read it, but it is fantastic. I it, It's going to be a, one of very few five-star reads of the year for me so far. And it's her looking back on the time in her life right after she split from her husband and she moved into this flat that she and her daughters could barely afford. And she had to reshape her life in certain areas, but then she was also continuing her work as a writer from before. And it's, it's this beautiful contrast of, you know, she's trying to continue to find who she is as a writer, but then who she is as a person has just been broken up and is in pieces on the floor. And she doesn't know which of those pieces she's going to carry forward into the rest of her life. She has a lot of observations about 
gender. Uh, the very first scene of the book is her looking at a young man talking to it. A, a young woman talking to an older man, and she realizes that the older man has no idea that this young woman considers herself a major character. To him, she'll always be a minor character in his life. So it's just filled with observations like that, and I really think it's a beautiful, beautiful book. So, well, that is it for us for this episode. Um, if you haven't already, we would love it if you would review us on Apple Podcasts or really wherever you get your podcasts. They've made it a lot easier recently. Autumn recently showed me that they've changed the way that they've done their reviews. So it's now a lot easier to find. You don't have to go look it up on the internet to try to figure it out. And so we greatly appreciate when you do that. Um, you can also check out our newsletter where we have updates on author Q&As, uh, book reviews that we do, and a lot of different news goes first to the newsletter. So you won't want to miss out. And all of that will be in our show notes. And of course, a special thanks to Jennifer for coming on the show. You can find a link to her booktube channel, Insert Literary Pen, here in our show notes. You'll definitely want to go check that out. And that is it for this episode of Reading Women. Join us next time where we will be talking more about The Good Earth and Toni Morrison. In the meantime, you can find Reading Women on social media at The Reading Women. You can also find Kendra at KD Winchester and me at Autumn Privet. You can find links to all the books and more information in our show notes. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon.